0: Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm your host, Mike Allen. Mass transit is avoided by many people like the plague. After all, you've got your cars to get around in, and what's a little gridlock among friends? Well, back in the late 1700s and early 1800s, the options were much different. Much of the long-term travel, if you had to do it, was done by Stagecoach. In fact, Stagecoaches were around for more than 50 years. They were essentially the Greyhound bus of the day. And wait until you hear what it was like. Here to talk about the Stagecoach era are two guests, Richard DeLucum, author of the book Post Roads and Iron Horses. And in it, he discusses stagecoach developments in Connecticut. Also, Bridget Girton, the executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. And she's gonna talk about Danbury's specific experience with the stagecoach era. And now, when stagecoaches were how you got around. take a lot for granted today. For example, the relative speed and comfort of mass transit, whether you like it or not, trains, buses, subways, trolleys all get us to where we're going. And it's so much better today than it was back in the colonial days. And back then, of course, horses powered everything. Well, you either rode a horse yourself, and there's a reason they called it saddle sore, or you went in a horse and buggy, or maybe hitched a ride on a farmer's horse and wagon. Or if you were going from one city to another, most likely you had to hop aboard a stagecoach. Stagecoaches started showing up on the scene after the Revolutionary War ended in 1783, and they stayed with us until different dates, and that was dependent on when the railroad came to town, and it was different in different destinations, and of course when the railroad came, it knocked stagecoach travel into oblivion. So in some locales, stagecoaches were around for 70 to 100 years, well, throughout Connecticut, believe it or not, there were stagecoach routes, and those routes and the scheduled stops were published in a book called Badger and Porter's Register of Coaches. Everybody knew about Badger and Porter's, sort of like the Farmer's Almanac of the day. Now, you'd be amazed where these stagecoaches went, crisscrossing the state in all directions. Today, in fact, if you go around and look in town directories, you'll find roads called Old Stagecoach Road, and many of them, in fact, do mark where the stagecoaches actually went. Now, the major routes that stagecoaches went on were routes like Route 202 or Route 1 or 6 or 7 or 10, and you get the picture, but they were dirt roads in those days, the earliest of our turnpikes. Local farmers, believe it or not, had to keep those dirt road turnpikes in shape, particularly after storms or when trees fell across them. And in local communities, those stagecoaches stopped at all the inns that dotted the Connecticut landscape in those days. That's where you got the food and the sleeping accommodations along the routes. Many of those inns remain today, in fact, and can be visited. Stagecoach travel was not a whole lot of fun. You had to deal with very cramped quarters. The stagecoach operators, of course, made their money by squeezing in as many paying customers as possible, and you paid that price. Suspension systems, which were of course supposed to give you a smooth ride, were rudimentary at best. The dirt roads had tons of ruts as well as tree roots and rocks that popped up and bounced you around. There was no air conditioning or heating, of course. You had to deal with the weather as it came. And those hard wooden benches that you sat on, well, they might have a simple cushion on them or not. When you got to a stop, and that occurred pretty frequently because the horses required it, you were lucky if there were some refreshments available. And on an overnight trip, most of the people had to bring their own bedding, usually a blanket that you unrolled on the wooden floor of the inn. And if you were lucky, it was in front of a fireplace where you could keep warm. Really, it's only the wealthier travelers who could afford to book a room with a bed. Well, sometimes you had to leave in the middle of the night without much chance to wash up. You can imagine the unbearable odor problems that that caused for passengers who were literally squished next to one another. Richard DeLuca is a specialist in how Connecticut developed all the way from colonial days to modern times. He looks at how transportation systems played a big role in facilitating all that development. And he says the stagecoach era was an extremely interesting period in Connecticut's history.
1: Right after the revolution, when the new nation was trying to stand on its own feet for the first time the key to doing that was to get some kind of economy going that would allow for exchange between these 13 individual states now before that they were each tied to England and they had their market there but now they've got to find a way to trade and and do commerce among themselves. So transportation, in particular, the ter- the first turnpike system and the stagecoaches that rode on them, I'd like to think of it as they literally stitched the country together in those first years. Then there was another guy that said, oh, I'm running a stage from Greenwich, maybe to New Haven. And another guy said, I'll go from New Haven to Hartford. And so it was a piecemeal service. It certainly made Connecticut part of a New England economy and it connected it to Washington, to Philadelphia, to a region much larger than the individual state. Well, there's a person, of course, who deserves a lot of credit for taking this all
0: to the next level. He had his own stagecoach service between Somers, his hometown near the Massachusetts border and Hartford. And it was, I guess, 1783 when Levi Peace opened that stagecoach line. And he knew all the routes around the state and in fact, Southern New England as well. And that came into play for him later on. And he was the guy who saw the opportunity and had a huge impact on the entire stagecoach industry.
1: Levi was another one of those guys that said, aha, you know, everybody's got a stagecoach. These guys are going to keep the roads in shape. Maybe I could, if I can get my act together and and get the vehicles, you know, organized, we might have something here. His claim to fame is that eventually he united all of these individual services in most of southern New England. And he was—he became known as the Stagecoach King. And it was important that stage coaching was
0: there for, you know, getting people around and expanding commerce between the states. But it's also how people made a living in a lot of different ways.
1: Stagecoaching, right. coaching, of course, gets its name because rather than make one straight-through trip, you do it in stages. Okay, and most stage coaches between. Feeding the horses and feeding the passengers would stop every eighteen miles or so. It's like a today uh you know a bus pulling into Mcdonald's somewhere okay well, they had and a lot of times there were financial ties between the people who owned the tavern and the people who ran the stage and in the case of a New York to Boston trip, for example, it would require an overnight somewhere. So the tavern would have to provide a room as well as food. And of course, they would change horses. So there was usually a stable involved. There were local farmers who grew the hay to feed the horses in the stables. So that when the railroad came along, there was a big uproar well, of course, railroads took away the really key economic
0: incentive for the stagecoach industry, which was not paying customers, right? It was, it was the stuff that stagecoaches could carry along with the passengers. And in fact, they got paid pretty handsomely to do that. And of course, that was delivering the mail.
1: Federal government to establish a, post, a national postal service was always looking for a way to carry that mail. And they offered contracts, people sending uh, whatever you would send through the mail, not just letters, you know, packages, uh, any kind of postal service. And that becomes the financial backbone of the stagecoach business.
0: Back when I first learned about stagecoaches, all I could think about was, you know, the Western movies, the Wild Wild West where you had stagecoaches all the time. Or maybe like a Wells Fargo commercial where they have that iconic stagecoach that they use. But it turns out that Connecticut businessmen didn't just make money by delivering the mails and, you know, feeding passengers and giving them a place to stay and repairing them when they broke down. They actually
1: had a thriving stagecoach industry right here where they actually built them. It became a very important industry, the building of, of wagons and coaches in Connecticut and specifically in the New Haven area, making individual stage parts like uh, wheels and hubs and, and axles or entire wagons or some people focused on making the uh, all the accoutrements that went on the stage. And there's even
0: this great story that we have because somebody wrote it down in like a diary or a letter about how stagecoaches, sometimes you were like in the middle of nowhere and you had a problem
1: with the stagecoach and it had to be repaired with nobody around to help you out. A British traveler in his journal makes note of the fact that a wheel did break and they stopped and they took a post from a nearby farmer's rail fence and they made the repair. The driver, with the help of the passengers, lifted up the coach, put a new axle through or whatever the, the specific problem was, and they went on their way. Bridget
0: Gertens, the executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, and she says that stage coaching was a central part of life in the growing community.
2: We had active stage lines um, and pickups in Danbury from uh, Revolutionary period on, so that's a that's a big chunk of time up until about 1851 uh, when Danbury gets uh, our first train station, and then that completely changes the model. Danbury, uh, as you know, during the Revolutionary War, uh, Danbury was, and, and even before the, the Revolutionary War, Danbury was this modestly uh, small. Um, farm town that's an agriculturally based that had a, a good connection with Boston and New York, but we weren't necessarily anybody's first stop. But during the Revolutionary War, we take on this role as a major supply depot, and it's super exciting, and all these artisans and artificers stay. And after the Revolutionary War, Danbury embarks on new industry and trade So this all makes Danbury sort of this bustling enterprise. And so we did have stagecoaches that were coming up from Norwalk or down to Norwalk on a regular basis prior to the Rev War and post-Rev War. And uh, from there, if you wanted to get to New York, you got on um, a fast ship it was not quite as fast <laughs> as we would like it to be today. Things progressed. And uh, by the time you get to the 1820s, uh, we are, we're moving faster. We've got Stagecoast Line going up to Litchfield, and we've got fresh fish from Litchfield streams and rivers coming down to Danbury. Uh, sometimes our stagecoaches are leaving at two o'clock in the morning, You know, picking people up in the main street corridor uh, with, with loud uh, announcements uh, that they are headed down, uh, down County, which did seem to be a little bit more of the norm. Again, Danbury is an important stop, but not necessarily the most important. So, you know, we had, as Dambarians, uh, we had access to coaches that came on a regular basis. They didn't all follow the same line, and they could get us to exotic locations like Norwalk um, or, you know, up to Litchfield or over to Boston, and there would have been trade-offs along the line um, or down to New York City, which, of course, was a really popular route, especially for the business people in town. Eventually, Norwalk uh, got a steamship, which apparently made the whole thing fantastically fast so you know you could get the stage down to norwalk and then uh, you get on, on the steamship and it brings you into new york city and it no longer takes an ungodly number of hours it's a little faster
0: And they did stop at the Taylor House, from what I
2: understand. Danbury had a number of different uh, downtown hotels and taverns. And so prior to the Revolutionary War, we had an active tavern system. After the Revolutionary War, we had a tavern system system that continued to grow. And then we built, um, after 1800s, we're building multi-story, multi-room places uh, for people to stay. All of that Over the subsequent decades from the Revolutionary War until about the 1851 period, we start building more places. So there was a Taylor Opera House. There was, um, I believe, a a Taylor's Tavern. And we had like Whitings and, and a whole bunch of other places Some of them are operated for 10 years, some of them are operated for 20 years. The names change and the town is growing up. Those places are growing up as well and hosting more people. So if you're from, uh, you know, uh, New Fairfields or you're from Brookfields and you don't necessarily have a stage line stopping in your town, you'd come into Danbury, you'd stay overnight or till 2 in the morning (laughs) when you were forced to get on the stage uh, and then, you know, continue on with your journey. So Danbury was a hub. Uh, for some of the smaller towns uh, and communities in our area, where they could, you know, catch their their transportation to more exotic locales.
0: And this same formula was repeated many times throughout the state, with larger communities playing host to the towns that had fewer residents, less development, and, unfortunately for them, no stagecoach lines. that wraps up this episode of amazing tales from off and on connecticut's beaten path the famed iron horse the train made its debut in connecticut starting around 1820 to 1850 and with that the stagecoach industry more or less disappeared today there are a few farms and carriage barns and museums around the state that have stagecoach relics gingerly stored and preserved to remind us of this very interesting past I want to thank my guests for this episode, Richard DeLuca, author of the book Post Roads and Iron Horses, and Bridget Girton, the executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. If you like the show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you'll be notified when the next episode is arriving, and please tell your family and friends and colleagues all about it. If you want to receive my quarterly newsletter, just drop me an email at AmazingTalesCT at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy.